0: and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.
3: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 708. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Trust us, this show has been the worst show. I'm on the show 708, and this is the fourth time it's already been released. We're a day late anyways. That's a different matter altogether. But just to get this out, there's been something on. I've been on hours now, hours, trying to sort this out. Bloody USB hub given like static and just oh dear dear me oh, anyway cool wet grass let's just get on with the show I'll tell you what's going in the main show then the main fiction it is a letter from the emperor by Steve Raznick Tem. Yes, and this story was actually was an original on Asimov's science fiction in January two thousand and ten. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back genre history. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So we'll jump straight into the main fiction, and I've read these these bios hundreds of times. Steve Rasnick-Tem is a past winner of the Bram Stoker, the World Fantasy and the British Fantasy Awards. His novel, Umbo Solaris Books, a finalist for the Bram Stoker Award, is a dark science fiction tale about violence and its origins, featuring such historical viewpoint characters as Jack the Ripper, Stalin and Himmler. He has published over 500 short stories, man, in his 40-plus year career. Steve, well done, lad, well done. Some of the best are collected in Thanatantrum and Figures Unseen from Valancourt Books and in The Night Doctor and Other Tales from Macabre, Inc., now, this story is narrated by two people, our good friend, Will Staggle, who is the kind of member of Starship Sova, and Lee Datura. Now, Lee probably have butchered, I've butchered it many times today. Will Staggle is proud to be a member of the Starship Over team, recruiting narrators for the podcast Stellar Stories. Will works as a creative professional and occasional musician from his home, adopted home of Tucson, Arizona. Lee is an otherworldly creature that resides on the Olympic Peninsula. She is a practitioner of somatic psychology with a focus on community liberation and a retired blueberry farmer. So, the Starship Sova is very
4: proud to present.
2: A Letter from the Emperor by Steve Rasnick Tem. Read to you by Will Stagel
4: and Lee Deterra.
2: A mishap occurred four sleeps from landfall. Jacob had been logging observations when he heard the alarm, so by the time he got down to the cargo bay, it was all over. The bay door was breached. He stared at the switch through the window. It had been opened from inside the bay. Whatever had been inside the bay had been swept out into space. Anders? He called through the comm. He waited. There was no answer. Ship command buzzed in his ear.
4: There are indications that Anders kneels.
2: Jacob shut the communication off. He didn't want to hear what command had to say. He went looking for Anders. The forward crew cabin was empty, as were the toilets, the shower, records, navigation, engineering, recreation, general stores. Jacob had been in the recording room when the alarm went off. He systematically tried every compartment, passage, pipe even the output trays of the garbage grinders. There was no place left to look. Anders, please report your whereabouts, he called through the comm. Again, no answer. He waited. He turned the link to ship command back on. Please report the whereabouts of Anders Niels, he said aloud.
4: Anders Niels is not on board,
2: a woman's voice spoke softly into his ear.
4: Procedure is to query ship command first when there is an unscheduled breach of the cargo bay. Why did you fail to query Ship Command? Why did you shut off initial communications from Ship Command?
2: Jacob didn't answer. He didn't know why he hadn't followed procedure. Maybe he already knew Anders was gone, but didn't want to hear Command's confirmation. Was that it? It made very little sense. Despite their long service together on messaging and data collection ships, he and Anders weren't even friends, as far as he understood. Suddenly, he wasn't sure. Was that possible? How had they not become friends, enemies, something? Somehow he had avoided entanglement. He'd spent his long hours listening, the job they'd trained to do, snatch the words out of space and trying to understand, and whenever possible delivering these stray messages to their intended destinations.
4: Please respond to official queries.
2: Command's voice had lost some of its warmth, its naturalness.
4: You have a duty to respond to these questions
2: the man was beginning to show its mechanical roots. He was a professional, a censor for the emperor, or to who or whatever passed for the emperor these days, capturing the nuances machinery was still incapable of. You record every stray fart was the usual vulgar summation of their duties. Such attention to detail discouraged both amity and enmity as far as he was concerned. He would be finishing the assignment alone, perhaps even the entire tour of duty. The realization left him cold, furious. How was he supposed to manage it? Besides recording local observations and handling messaging, the ship delivered statements of regulation and proclamations to the outlying settlements. But a quick replacement was impossible. Out here on the farthest reaches of the Empire, where the dividing line between Empire and not-Empire wasn't all that clear.
4: Did Anders Niels speak to you before going to the cargo bay?
2: Jacob gathered Anders' spare clothes into a bag. He cataloged his former crewmate's personal effects, his toiletries, his player, various small art objects.
4: Please respond. Did Anders Niels speak to you of his intentions?
2: Jacob ignored command's transmissions. He separated out all written notes and recordings, checking the storage on Anders' personal device for data files and images. Anders' diary files were extensive and detailed, and he only had time to go through a sampling. The entries surprised him but he had no time or inclination to be surprised.
4: Did Anders' nails show observable signs of depression?
2: He'd never liked talking to ship command. The fact that it appeared to possess more charisma and compassion than he did, grated. He caught his first yawn while carefully placing Anders' personal documents into a sealed container. Over the next brief interval, the yawns multiplied rapidly. There was no way to fight ship commands in forced sleep. He barely made it back to his bunk before oblivion wiped him away. After sleep, command brought him up to dialogue regarding the incident. The temperature in the recording room had dropped noticeably into the discomfort zone.
4: Please change your uniform to the appropriate formality.
2: The voice out of the speaker was soft again, lush. He considered how brittle his own voice was in comparison. He brushed two fingers over his cuff until the correct dark blue color swam beneath them. Correct. Pause.
4: The Emperor expresses his condolences for the loss of crewman reporter Anders Niels.
2: The voice sounded achingly sincere. It made Jacob ashamed of his own underdeveloped powers of empathy. Another awkwardly long pause.
4: How long did you serve with Anders Niels?
2: It would have been four years in a few sleeps.
4: More precise, please.
2: You have this information. He didn't bother to mask his annoyance.
4: Answer, please. We understand this may be a difficult time.
2: Command rarely said we. Suddenly, Jacob felt unsure whom he was talking to. Jacob ran his fingers over the table, accessing his personal diary.
4: Three years, eleven months, three weeks, seventy-three hours, and four minutes, at least until the time of the hatch alarm.
2: Another long pause. Jacob knew this wasn't processing inefficiency. Tom could formulate appropriate questions instantly. It was giving him time to think and remember, and it was measuring and analyzing that process. But as far as he knew, he had nothing to remember. So he waited.
4: Did you know Anders had been depressed? Was he? Do You know why Anders would commit suicide?
2: Is that what he did? What is your percentage of certitude on that?
4: 43%.
2: Then you don't know to a certainty. Quite a long pause then.
4: We do not know, to a certainty.
2: Then you don't know what you're talking about. A red light glowed unsteadily on the panel. Jacob thought about Anders, concluded they'd never really been friends.
4: You have heard the personal diaries of Anders Niels.
2: It wasn't a question. Wasn't Command supposed to be asking questions? He answered anyway, thinking that at least he was doing his part. I listened to some of it. There wasn't time for a full examination.
4: What was your impression of the personal diaries of Anders Niels?
2: I, well, that's hard to say. He recorded a great deal. I suppose that surprised me. And they were well composed, I think. Somewhat poetic, I suppose.
4: Did any of the events described in the diaries of Anders Niels actually occur?
2: No, none that I heard. They were pretty outlandish.
4: Please define outlandish as you understand it.
2: Oh, unusual, crazy, impossible. We never went to the locations he describes. You know that very well. We did not visit those places or have those adventures.
4: You did not have the kind of relationship with Anders Niels he describes?
2: Well, no. No, I did not. I didn't know him all that well, actually.
4: You were not friends?
2: Well, not close. Not like that. We were acquaintances. We worked together. We had a working relationship.
4: Why were you not friends?
2: Jacob never would have expected command to ask such a thing. I really don't know how to answer that, he finally replied.
4: Why did you not know Anders was thinking of committing suicide?
2: Jacob would not answer. He sat there silently staring into the red-eye lens mounted in the panel until the countdown for landing preparations began. The planet's surface was that light-trapping coating they'd used for official installations and supporting structures back before his grandfather was born. The fact that here and there it glistened and flowed with bits of color only emphasized how basically drab it all was. But it was durable and resistant to the attempts of most planetary ecologies to reclaim it.
4: Welcome to Joy!
2: the officer said with what appeared to be a generally warm smile jacob blinked this wasn't the official designation from the looks of things someone had a sense of humor
4: would appears so
2: she said still smiling
4: nine, six og 4-32
2: then i'm in the correct place the comm link in his ear murmured
4: you may inform her that her uniform color has shifted out of sequence
2: but he ignored that true Her outfit appeared slightly on the purplish side, but it was probably the best she could do. It was no doubt decades old and difficult to calibrate.
4: I'm pleased. We don't get many visitors.
2: Protocols were loose here, he observed. Not that he really cared. I'm only scheduled for two sleeps, he said, not really wanting to discourage her friendly manner, although he was sure it came across that way.
4: Well, we'll see what we can show you during that time. I know that the reporterships like to record as much as possible during their limited visits.
2: Tom buzzed his ear.
4: There are currently 432 undelivered regulatory messages due for 960G4-32. Too many for practical application. Please select at your discretion.
2: He had no intention of passing along any of these messages. In any case, how could they be enforced? He nodded, thinking she probably hadn't even been born yet when the last such ship arrived. She'd probably briefed herself from some aging manual. The truth was the system didn't care that much about the outlying bases, just some basic facts on population and armaments for the statistical grids. He'd heard that the assumption had always been that such far-flung installations would fade in and out of participation in the Empire over time. Otherwise, their construction would have been made more pleasing. Anya, you should have called me. The man's voice was somewhat frail, but commanding as he trotted into the room. He raised a palm. Jacob returned the gesture tentatively, no longer accustomed to the act.
4: "'I believe I did, Colonel,'
2: she said softly, stepping back from her post as the man stepped onto the platform. "'Terrible bother, this scan business,' he said, face slightly red, "'but required. Looking for tentacles, I suppose. "'It was an old joke. Jacob waited for the inefficient sensors to grind to a halt. "'Have you ever turned up, any? "'Certainly not with this device. "'There were strangers about in the old days.' They might have run into a few during the sweeps. But hard to say. Back then, they had these taglines attached to every communication. If they're not a friend, they might be a stranger. Remember those? Of course not. You're far too young. In any case, we were told they were all about. Problem is, they were, are, so hard to identify. Has the process gotten any easier? Surely with all the advances. Jacob wondered what advances the old man could have been talking about. People could be so gullible out on the reaches. Not that I know of. I've never seen a stranger myself. Friends all, I suppose. The aging officer stared at him. You should make light of such things. I'm surprised you haven't seen one of the enemy, as much as you travel. Do you have word? Official, of course. On the progress of the war? Jacob had the uneasy feeling that the man might keep him quarantined and under scan if he didn't provide a satisfactory answer. He wished he had Anders' ability at complete fabrication. His ear buzzed.
4: The war ebbs and flows, but remains constant. The empire continues to maintain.
2: Ashamed of himself, Jacob repeated command's answer, word for word. Very well, then. The officer motioned and Jacob was propelled forward up the ramp. The man's hand thrust forward, gripping his arm. Welcome to our humble landing. Anya, Officer Boldwan, is preparing the statistical feed. Any specific observations you'd like to make? Not really. As I was explaining to the other officer, I'm only here for two sleeps. Very well. You do realize your sleep regulation is enforced here. If you'd like to continue your accustomed sleep cycle, you can return to your vessel at the appropriate intervals. I'd like to give it a try. Certainly. Some have a difficult time transitioning. The officer looked down suddenly, as if intent on something on the instrument panel. Do you have messages to deliver? He asked without looking up. Buzz.
4: 432 Undelivered Regulatory Messages
2: Jacob shook his head in annoyance. There are a few, probably obsolete, regulatory messages. The officer laughed to himself. Well, we hardly need more of those. He wet his lips. Anything for specific persons? Buzz.
4: Specific name is required for an adequate search. Mr. X now at over 62% due to addressing and time-delimiting malfunctions.
2: I'm not sure. I will certainly.
4: My father is retiring tomorrow.
2: Anya spoke up, entering from the hall.
4: He's been waiting for his letter from the Emperor.
2: They skittered across the dull-sealed surface of the world in a shallow vehicle looking somewhat like a huge sandal. An old geomagnetic skimmer, as far as he could tell, although it had a homemade, jerry-built feel, Regulation replacement parts were unheard of out here, or in most of the Empire, if full truth were known. Now and then they'd pass over a deteriorated portion of the coating, and the skimmer would fishtail with a twittering sound.
4: It's really more stable than it seems.
2: She was obviously amused by his discomfort.
4: I'm sorry about my father back there.
2: He didn't do anything wrong. You embarrassed him. She sighed.
4: Yes, I'm afraid I did. It's just that he's been waiting for that stupid letter for so long, and I know he'd never ask about it directly.
2: Well, yes, I surmise that. The way he began immediately apologizing for your uniform and his, obviously to change the subject. My uniform is currently 22 points out of color phase. Officer Anya Baldwin's is currently 36 points out of color phase.
4: The sad thing is that he tracks those figures every day, and at the end of the month, he grasps the progress. He worries about that sort of thing. It's like he expects my uniform will turn transparent in another year.
2: Jacob thought he might actually blush. The notion filled him with self-loathing. He couldn't look at her. They're old uniforms. It can't be helped. I don't suppose it even matters.
4: It matters very much to my father. And he only has another day for it to matter. So, is there a letter, crewman reporter Jacob Westman? Do you know anything, or is it all in that thing in your ear?
2: She might have not seen his kind before, but she read manuals. Patience, please. My ear is attempting to tell me what it knows.
4: Letters from the emperor were given at one time to higher officers, including provisional officers in charge of outposts and settlements upon the occasion of their retirement. The practice has been largely discontinued, declining rapidly as chains of command have become increasingly ambivalent. Rarely did such letters receive the emperor's personal attention. Last recorded incident of such a letter. Records are incomplete. He knew the emperor at one time. She said. They were friends. He served with him when they were both young. I think that's why he has his hopes so high. Monitoring this statement due to its high probability of fabrication, positing truthfulness, such a relationship might possibly make a difference. Is it a friendship? Please note the small case, F. Probability is difficult to determine. High inaccuracy due to questions as to whether a singular figure known as the, quote, emperor, in fact, now exists. Parameters classified. Does your ear need more time? Apparently. I'm sorry. So how does it feel? Having that voice in your head all the time. I can't manage even the low volume of communications we deal with on Joy. Don't tell my father, but sometimes I unplug.
2: Truthfully, it becomes annoying at times. But it is. He stopped watching her eyes. Company. She nodded.
4: It does get lonely here, you know. Even after all this time, the older staff will be talking to you, and it feels like a genuine conversation. Then suddenly they're treating you like you were a stranger.
2: From my observations in these outlying posts, that is an unusual behavior.
4: So are they still out there? Speculations here are ill-advised.
2: Honestly, I really have no idea. Possibly?
4: Is the Emperor even still alive? We never hear anything out here. Lack of complete information is no excuse for misleading statements by crew members acting in their official capacity.
2: I'm afraid I can't help you there either. Some things work, I know that. We receive communications, including new regulations and orders, although infrequently supply ships arrive at destinations. Tom buzzed his ear aggressively, but he ignored it. Other military ships are encountered. The Empire runs, although its board has apparently continued to change. And from my observation, most of the settlements appear to be running themselves. Maybe there's still an emperor, maybe there's a committee. People talk about the strangers, but no one I know has ever seen one. Some people say there are no strangers, and no emperor either.
4: Well, there was an emperor. My father knew him. He says in the old days, before he took command, the emperor was expected to serve just like everyone else.
2: He must have some interesting stories from that time. The world's surface coating stopped abruptly, and the skimmer almost as quickly. The unsettled portion of joy rolled out in front of them, its multicolored layers of stone swirling into cones, peaks, and shallow valleys. The late afternoon light emphasized its strangeness, and its random highlighting of geologic features gave the landscape an appearance of constant movement. Very pretty, he said, feeling inadequate to the task of responding to such an exotic vision.
4: Yes, but I'm afraid that ends the tour. Bad enough, I go out there by myself without orders. But if you were to be injured, you can imagine, I'm sure but it has such beauty and strangeness. I'm not sure I could handle so much joy without it. She laughed. That was a silly thing to say, I guess.
2: He wanted to tell her how much he enjoyed hearing her laughter, but of course he did not. You stay because of your father?
4: He retires tomorrow, and I'm supposed to take over. Maybe then we can stretch things a bit, and I can find excuses to go out there more. Besides, he needs me for now. There are so many things he's unsure of.
2: I can't promise any particular results, but I'll keep searching for some sort of message. At least some official recognition of his retirement.
4: He knew the emperor. I'm sure of it. My father isn't the sort of person to fabricate things. Fabrication is always a potential hazard when inadequate information is present. I believe you. But he doesn't have any stories. His memory stops after meeting the emperor, going out on those first tentative incursions. At some point, his entire platoon came back with the Emperor, and the powers that be must have suspected a stranger was among them, because they were all examined. It that's even an adequate word for it. He's lost most of his memories of that period. And although his official record provides dates and locations, details are sparse. Possibilities of message retrieval using insufficient search parameters are questionable.
2: I hope a message comes through. I'll return to the ship, spend the rest of the day in queries.
4: Even if you can't find anything, please come to the ceremony tomorrow. Having someone from outside in attendance, in official capacity, or not.
2: Of course. Of course I'll be there. He said, even though the idea of standing within a gathering of people he did not know made him cringe. That evening, he sat alone in the recording room in the hours before and before sleep, As he would sit alone before many sleeps until the powers above, and there were thousands of layers, he thought, of powers above, chose someone to replace Anders. And he sat alone time after time when Anders had still been alive and only a few meters away, simply another stranger listening for voices in the dark, recording what those voices had to say. Tonight there were a thousand such voices, most chronicling the minutia of rulings and orders, specifications and principles some calling out for contact from worlds not visited in generations, some pleading for assistance, remuneration, or the simple return of a greeting, and a few hesitant inquiries concerning strangers, and the few still wondering aloud if strangers had at last taken over all that could be seen, heard, or imagined. The emperor himself, however, was conspicuously silent, as he had been silent and invisible all of Jacob's life. The possibility the sought-after letter might miraculously alive seemed almost infinitely remote. Continue to parse and deliver all incoming and previously uncategorized communications, Jacob said aloud, but please intersperse with entries from the diaries of Anders Niels. The man remained silent, as it had all evening, but swiftly complied. The hall where the ceremony had been held was small, but so was the attendance. Official banners had been hung, each one a few points off in color as far as Jacob could determine lending a not entirely unpleasant, but unmistakable disharmony to the proceedings. The wall cycled images of the retiring colonel at various points in his career, but there were numerous obvious gaps. A few of the images portrayed groups of officers and enlisted. Jacob wondered if any of the blurred, shadowed faces was that of the emperor. People stood up one at a time and offered chronicles of their experiences serving with the colonel. Some talked about his skills as an administrator, a supervisor. One or two said he was a visionary but provided no clear evidence for the claim. A man appearing older than the colonel told a semi-humorous story of their time serving together in the campaigns, but stopped abruptly and sat down. Jacob then realized the man must have also been part of the group suffering the examination which had scattered the colonel's memories. Anya stood and told everyone what a good father he had been. She talked about his patience and how much she respected him. When she sat down, Jacob saw her warily eyeing the thin sheet of film Jacob held in his shaking hand. "'Is there anyone else?' a small man in a faded clerk's uniform asked. Jacob stood and unsteadily made his way to the front of the room. When he turned around, he looked for someone to focus on. He discovered he couldn't begin to look at the colonel, but watching Anya's face as he read was pleasant and barely possible. He held the sheet tightly to minimize shaking." The vast spaces between us are filled with messages. In these scattered times, few seem to find their intended destinations or satisfy us with the things we've always wanted to hear. But sometimes you can stitch together a voice here, a voice there, until some clarity of feeling emerges. I cannot vouch for the complete accuracy of what I'm about to read. It is difficult to verify the messages that come to us out of the vast unknown but I intuit its general true feeling. The Colonel William Baldwin, officer in custody of joy, from Joseph, once acquaintance and always friend, emperor of all he loves, hates, or imagines, on the occasion of the Colonel's retirement from a lifetime of most meritorious service. Now, you may not remember because of measures taken both terrible and necessary, but when I hungered so long for sustenance and courage You made us a meal out of the wings of some glorious bird whose name was unfamiliar to all, whose face bore a map of the hard world we'd traveled. And while we ate, our eyes became like white jewels, and we paid each other out of laughter and song. For us, there were no soldiers or emperors, no desperate orders or misguided honor to separate us. And we swore to each other the peace that comes with age. I would stand by you as your children were married, and we would tolerate no serious disagreement and think nothing of the worlds that separated us, but praise the fineness of difference. When we woke, I could see your embarrassment, the shame you felt for being so familiar, and you would not hear when I explained what all emperors know, that sometimes the heart must be lubricated if any truth is to be told. Still, we were no strangers to adventure. We were not strangers in our hearts. Without regret, I followed you into the fires at Wailung, where the breath of the dying flyers erased our uniforms and then our hair. In agony, you carried me to the fountains of that fading world, where those beautiful ghosts regretted our injuries, and we lay swaddled in their manes as the battles raged without us, until finally I could open my eyes without screaming, and you had that ship waiting, and past the 82 falls of those unfortunate worlds, you transported me, until the rest of the fleet arrived. And there began our first separation. And you should know my people thought it improper. They called themselves my people, but in truth I was irretrievably theirs. Some beings must remain separate, they told me, and a friendship of equals is a lie we tell children. So I had to content myself with reports of your exploits, your rescue mission between the two green seas, the time you brought the children, those oh-so-gullible children, out of the mines at Shan. And your long voyage out of the Shilin clouds. If you could only remember our next meeting at the Heijin temples, how broken I was over those jokes you told. I painted my cheeks like a little girl, and you danced until you were too hoarse to sing. Later, when you were afraid your honor could not bear such frivolous and insane behavior, I somehow convinced you that sometimes insanity is the only reasonable response to atrocity, and the death of everything, and long voyages home alone in the dark. But all this ends, and even I, with such a grand, fully augmented memory, cannot remember the last time we laughed together any more than you, my friend. It all has to end, and strangeness comes, and there is no science deep enough to explicate the secrets of the heart. An empire separates us, but still I think of you. Signed, Joseph, your emperor. Jacob returned immediately to his ship. His dialogue with command continued in the recording room, even as the vessel departed that atmosphere, trailing unanswered messages from the occupants of joy.
4: This is a continuation of queries related to the death of Anders Niels, Crewman Reporter 3rd. Are you prepared to answer these queries?
2: Ask me anything. You may also repeat questions from our first session. Obviously, I have nothing better to do.
4: Before proceeding to those queries, we would like to ask you some possibly related questions concerning your stay on 960-G4-32.
2: Yes, I imagine you do.
4: The letter you read from the Emperor Joseph, that was a complete fabrication, was it not?
2: Yes, a complete fabrication.
4: The letter was fabricated from fabrications previously entered by Anders Niels in his diaries concerning imaginary adventures you and he experienced while visiting a variety of worlds.
2: Yes, that was the principal source, Andrew's imaginary adventures and the imaginary friendship he invented for us. But I filled it in with a few details from the colonel's service record, some stray descriptive passages from the soup of transmissions I have traveled in these past nine years. The style came out of Lipo's Exiles Letters. Have you read it?
4: The poem is in the database.
2: I admit I've hardly done it justice.
4: So you admit the Emperor's letter was a lie?
2: Jacob waited, thinking, then said, It is not a lie. It's an accurate depiction of the way Anders Nels felt about me, felt about the loneliness of the voyage. It is an accurate depiction of his yearnings. I also believe it is an accurate depiction of Colonel Baldwin's yearnings, and perhaps those of our maybe-living, maybe-not-Emperor as well. It is certainly an accurate depiction of my own feelings.
4: But the events you've narrated... Events which were supposedly experienced by Colonel Baldwin are fictional.
2: Those events, those memories are gone forever. They were taken from the colonel. If the colonel had lost a leg in combat, the service would have provided him with a prosthetic. The events I've narrated in the Emperor's letter are a prosthetic for what he lost.
4: you know why Anders would commit suicide?
2: I cannot be sure. I will never be sure. But I believe the stories he had made up are fabricated, to use your word, had ceased to work for him. He must have been terribly, terribly lonely.
4: He should have spoken to you. He could have asked us for assistance.
2: Some people are unable to ask or tell. People do what they can do.
4: Why did you not know Anders was thinking of committing suicide?
2: Because I failed at the one thing I have been so thoroughly trained to do. I failed to listen. And there ended the interview. Jacob returned to his long nights listening alone, waiting for Anders' replacement, wondering if there would even be a replacement. Now and then he would listen to Anders' diaries. Now and then he would make up diary entries of his own. Command wrapped up its report and transmitted it into the empty space between its reported location and a vague approximation of the location called home, not knowing or caring if contact was made. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
1: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom
5: user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: And there you go. Big thank you to Steve. Steve, what a story. Thank you indeed. And Will Lee Amazing, Absolutely amazing. So, it is our very own. And a big thank you to Amy for telling us that it was just, I'd messed up. Amy, thank you. Looking back at genre history, Ames.
1: Hello, my friends. It's time to take another look back at genre history. Today, I want to talk about a stellar figure in science fiction. And I'm going to go at this kind of backwards, starting with some exciting news. I have talked before on past segments about the Library of America, which is a nonprofit organization that publishes and preserves and celebrates America's greatest writing. So works that reflect great contributions to U.S. literature it's probably no surprise that I do have a bit of wariness about those who are self-styled arbiters of Big L literature, because I find that often such literary gatekeepers overlook, undervalue, or flat-out erase genre fiction. However, I'm glad to say Library of America has made real strides in recent years Reflecting an intention to spotlight and give credit to the way genre writers and genre works have contributed to U.S. literature, publishing various anthologies as well as collections of writers such as Ray Bradbury, Philip K. Dick, Kurt Vonnegut, Ursula K. Le Guin, Octavia Butler. You get the idea. Some of the greats. And I want to give credit to Library of America for including genre voices in their publications. I was very pleased then to see an announcement from Library of America about a forthcoming volume that will be out in the autumn of 2023. That is Joanna Russ, Novels and Stories. And here is how Library of America describes this volume. Quote, An incandescent stylist with a dark sense of humor and a provocative feminist edge, Joanna Russ upended every genre she worked in. The essential novels and stories gathered in this Library of America edition reveal her as not only an astonishing writer of speculative fiction, but in the words of Samuel Delaney, quote, one of the finest and most necessary writers of American fiction, end quote, period. Here is her classic novel, The Female Man, 1975, a multi-voiced, multi-dimensional voyage that continues to alter readers' sense of gender and reality. We who are about to 1977, an allegorical thriller that challenges the era's conventional expectations about the progress of civilization. And her incisive, ultimately joyous final novel, exploring LGBTQIA plus and feminist themes, On Strike Against God, 1980. The volume also restores to print Russ's complete Alex stories, which reinvent the sword and sorcery genre for a postmodern era, and includes her unforgettable, award-winning tales, When It Changed, and Souls." Quote. I am very excited about this volume. Now, I do want to point out that this is not the first time Library of America will have published Joanna Russ. Library of America's American Science Fiction, four classic novels, 1968 to 1969, includes, along with Past Master by R.A. Lafferty, Nova by Samuel R. Delaney, and Inferio by Jack Vance, the novel Picnic on Paradise by Joanna Russ. Here is how Library of America described that work, quote, Joanna Russ introduces one of science fiction's first and most engaging female adventurers in her taut and edgy debut novel Picnic on Paradise, 1968. The tough, sardonic, unforgettable Alex, an ancient Phoenician mercenary, teleported into the future to serve as guide and bodyguard for a band of stranded space tourists, end quote. Also, Joanna Russ was represented in another Library of America volume, The Future is Female, 25 Classic Science Fiction Stories by Women, from Pulp Pioneers to Ursula K. Le Guin, edited by Lisa Yazik. That anthology includes the 1968 short story The Barbarian by Joanna Russ. And here is a quote from the introduction of that book, by Lisa Yazick It is one thing to map the limits of traditional gender roles and the damage they do to women and men alike, as many authors in this volume do implicitly. It is another to envision and articulate new arrangements that might have some positive bearing on the present. As several New Wave authors, including Ursula K. Le Guin in The Left Hand of Darkness, 1969, and Joanna Russ in The Female Man, 1975, went on to do over the course of their subsequent careers. And this is why we need to remember the women of early science fiction. They are the missing link between the pioneering experiments of Mary Shelley and the finely honed, radiant results we see increasingly in the work of women writing today, End quote. I think that's a lovely point about why it is important to know and to appreciate our genre history. And certainly Joanna Russ is a voice that deserves to be heard and remembered. Also, Joanna Russ appears in another Library of America volume, The Future is Female, more classic science fiction stories by women, volume two, The 1970s, also edited by Lisa Yazik. That includes Russ's 1972 story, When It Changed. Now, I have taught when it changed multiple times. It always resonates with students. Students still see today what Russ was doing and why it's important. It was first published in Harlan Ellison's Again Dangerous Visions anthology. It won the 1972 Nebula Award for Best Short Story. It was a finalist for the 1973 Hugo Award. The story is about... An all-women human colony planet known as Wilaway. All of the men died in a plague 30 generations earlier, but the women persisted. They combined their ova to produce children. They built a world and a life. And in the course of the story, well, male astronauts from Earth arrive at Wilaway Earth has become genetically deficient, and these men want to reproduce with the women of While Away. In the afterword to the story, Russ explained why she wrote When It Changed, and how she was trying to address not only the topic of societies of women, but the issue of how societies of women had been portrayed by male authors who came before her. And she wrote, quote, I have read science fiction stories about manless worlds before. They are either full of busty girls and wisps of chiffon who slink about writhing with lust, or the women have set up a static, bee-like society in imitation of some presumed primitive matriarchy these stories are written by men. Why women, who have been alone for generations, should instinctively, that's in quotes, turn their sexual desires toward persons of whom they have only intellectual knowledge, or why female people are presumed to have an innate preference for Byzantine rigidity, I don't know, quote. I'd like to read to you a passage from When It Changed that we often talk about in class when I teach this work. It always generates some very interesting discussions. And I'm going to read this passage from When It Changed out of my copy of The New Women of Wonder, edited by Pamela Sargent, originally published in 1972. I have the 1977 version. Here, Janet Evison on while Away is talking with a male astronaut from Earth. Quote, I tried also to outline our government, the two houses, the one by professions and the geographic one. I told him the district caucuses handled problems too big for the individual towns and that population control was not a political issue. Not yet, though. Give us time and it would be. "'This was a delicate point in our history. Give us time. There was no need to sacrifice the quality of life for an insane rush into industrialization. Let us go our own pace. Give us time.' "'Where are all the people?' said that monomaniac. I realized then that he did not mean people. He meant men.' And he was giving the word the meaning it had not had on Hwileway for six centuries. They died, I said, thirty generations ago. I thought we had pole-axed him. He caught his breath. He made as if to get out of the chair he was sitting in. He put his hand to his chest. He looked around at us with the strangest blend of awe and sentimental tenderness. Then he said solemnly and earnestly, "'A great tragedy.' "'I waited, not quite understanding. "'Yes,' he said, catching his breath again "'with that queer smile, that adult-to-child smile "'that tells you something is being hidden "'and will be presently produced with cries of encouragement and joy. "'A great tragedy, but it's over.' "'And again he looked around at all of us "'with the strangest deference.' "'as if we were invalids. "'You've adapted amazingly,' he said. "'To what?' I said. "'He looked embarrassed. "'He looked inane. "'Finally,' he said, "'Where I come from, "'the women don't dress so plainly.' "'Like you?' I said. "'Like a bride?' "'For the men were wearing silver "'from head to foot. "'I had never seen anything so gaudy.' He made as if to answer, and then apparently thought better of it. He laughed at me again, with an odd exhilaration, as if we were something childish and something wonderful, as if he were doing us an enormous favor. He took one shaky breath and said, well, we're here, end quote. And yes, that definitely gets the conversation started. Fascinating Work from Russ. So let me back up now and give you a bit more context. Joanna Russ, U.S. author and scholar, I should note, lived from 1937 to 2011. She graduated from Cornell University, where she studied with Vladimir Nabokov in 1957. She received her MFA from the Yale Drama School in 1960. And after teaching at several universities, including Cornell, she became a full professor of English at the University of Washington in 1977. She was known, among other things, for her anger. In her book, How to Suppress Women's Writing in 1983, she wrote, quote, I think from now on I will not trust anyone who isn't angry, end quote. And In fact, you can pick this up from... A writing by Alice Sheldon, better known as James Tiptree Jr., a letter to Joanna Russ in which she wrote quote, Do you imagine that anyone with half a functional neuron can read your work and not have his fingers smoked by the bitter, multi layered anger in it? It smells and smoulders like a volcano. Buried so long and deadly, it is just beginning to wonder if it can explode, quote. What a description. In How to Suppress Women's Writing, Joanna Russ also writes this, and again, I think this is so important in terms of thinking about genre history. Quote, when the memory of one's predecessors is buried the assumption persists that there were none, and each generation of women believes itself to be faced with the burden of doing everything for the first time. And if no one ever did it before, if no woman was ever that socially sacred creature, a great writer, why do we think we can succeed now? End quote. But Russ was a great writer, and she did make it possible for others to see they could succeed now. Her most famous work is The Female Man from 1975. It was nominated for the Nebula Award for Best Novel. It won one of three retrospective Tiptree Awards, now known as the Otherwise Award, a literary prize for works of science fiction or fantasy that expand or explore one's understanding of gender It also won a 2002 Galactic Spectrum Hall of Fame Award. The novel follows the lives of four women in parallel worlds that are different in time and in place. Joanna is in a world that's very much like Earth in the 1970s. She calls herself the female man because she believes she must forget her identity as a woman in order to be respected. There's also Janine, who lives in a world where the Great Depression never ended, and World War II never happened because Hitler died in 1936. There is the world of away. That's the same place, a variation on the theme, then, from the story When It Changed, where it is a woman-only society, where they reproduce through Parthenogenesis. And then there is Jail's World, which is a dystopian place where men and women are literally engaged in a battle of the sexes, a conflict that has been going on for decades. This was a pathbreaking, breaking and important novel. But she wasn't just a fiction writer. Russ also wrote many non-fiction collections of literary criticism, and that's important in genre history too. Someone who was not only writing genre work, but also writing genre criticism, legitimizing the study of and the response to genre work. She was an influential review columnist for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction for nearly 15 years, and she also wrote collections such as Speculations on the Subjectivity of Science Fiction, from 1973. Somebody's Trying to Kill Me and I Think It's My Husband, The Modern Gothic, 1973. How to Suppress Women's Writing, 1983. Magic Mamas, Trembling Sisters, Puritans and Perverts, Feminist Essays, 1985. To Write Like a Woman, 1995. What Are We Fighting For? Sex, Race, Class, and the Future of Feminism, 1997, and The Country You Have Never Seen, Essays and Reviews, 2007. Russ has also been the subject of several book-length studies, including Jean Cortiel's Demand My Writing, Joanna Russ, Feminism Science Fiction from 1999, Farah Mindelson's On Joanna Russ, 2009. Gwyneth Jones wrote a 2019 book about Joanna Russ that was part of the University of Illinois Press series called Modern Masters of Science Fiction. Russ was also a main focus in Sarah LaFanu's Chinks in the World Machine Feminism and Science Fiction from 1988. Russ was one of the most outspoken authors to challenge male dominance of science fiction as a woman, as a lesbian, and she is generally regarded as one of the leading feminist science fiction scholars as well as writers. She was also, by the way, one of the first major science fiction writers to take the cultural and literary implications of fandom, including the writing of slash fan fiction, seriously. She was named to the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame in 2013. And all of this is to say I am very excited about Joanna Russ' Novels and Stories, And I think that will be a great place for discovering or revisiting the works of a stellar figure in science fiction, Joanna Russ. I hope this was of interest to you, and I look forward to talking about something completely different when we get together again to take another look back on genre history.
3: Thank you. Oh, big hugs, Amy. Thank you so much indeed. So that is it. That is show 708, Put to Bed. I don't know how many times I've recorded this and said that, but I'm going to wheel out my hat as well, you know, my tin can and hat. Again, because I've said this a few times as well, but if you can support her, that would be absolutely amazing. We kind of, the figures are going down, down, down. And I understand, totally get it. You know what I mean? It's kind of, we're in a bit of a world financial crisis, but if you can keep her going, just, you know, a few quid a week on Patreon or on PayPal, all the details are on the front of the website. That would be amazing. And a big thank you in advance from me until next week just like to see, or the week after just like to see. good night from me thank you for
0: listening. I don't get out much I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly Won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I wanna talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say